Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Our next guest is a virtuoso at violin and sound design. She's the composer behind the riveting and at times unsettling Emmy and Golden Globe nominated dramatic series The Sinner. She is also the sonic architect behind the Facebook watch Limetown based on the hit podcast. And the composer is Ronit Kirchman. Hi, Matt. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. So, Ronit, I saw that you started playing violin at age four. Uh, at that age, is that even your choice? <laughs> well, remarkably, it actually was a choice. I have been told this story, but I, I think it's true. <laughs> My mom was saying that, um, you know, we'd watch a lot of... Uh, orchestral concerts on TV when I was a toddler, and I would consistently point um, vigorously at the violin and saying, I want that. I want to play that. And um, I guess initially, she was a little bit hesitant because she'd had both violin and piano lessons as a kid, and her violin teacher was um, one of those teachers who kind of makes you have an aversion response to the instrument. <laughs> so her associations were not positive. So if anything, she tried to dissuade me, but I was very, very insistent that that's where I wanted to start. So, um, so yeah, uh, it was actually a choice. And it's interesting because it, I can't really, even as a beginner, I can't remember a time when it didn't feel kind of like second nature and a part of me. It feels like there's always a little extension coming out from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always wish I had that with violin. I think it was, I was like 12 or 13 when I started playing guitar, and that was it. Well, I I, I feel like um, what's amazing to me is, you know, people who do start later, um, it's it's not always a, a challenge or an obstacle or a problem. So we kind of find it when we need to find it. Um, but yeah, I think... For me, the the earliest things were like violin and voice. So I was always writing songs and playing violin. And and then I think violin really opened up the whole world of string instruments for me. So that it was when I started studying guitar later, it was there are a lot of kind of technical and kind of brain things that are you can cross apply. Yeah. And I think that there's something nonlinear and almost architectural about the way you have to think about your fingers and um, body when you're playing a string instrument that um, I'm glad to have had kind of built in so that when you add the keyboards later, it's almost simpler because it's all laid out in a line. <laughs> so in some ways, I think like the there's like nonlinearity and continuity built into some aspects of string playing that help with sound design and programming just from a the point of view of how you experience sound um the way you can shape a gesture uh you know no one bow stroke or sustain is the same there's so many options within each note i think that i think it laid the groundwork in in a way yeah so were there any like roadblocks in your studying of violin i guess from being a kid to 
out of going to college. Did you ever like feel like there was a moment where you were fighting the instrument or you just didn't want to do music? There was never a moment when I didn't want to do music. And I think um, there, I'm happy to talk about other things that I had to kind of proactively address and challenges and stuff. But I think the desire, the motivation, it was just kind of like always. And in some ways, since I was never forced to practice, I did practice some as uh, when I was really little, but it, it was, um, my parents kind of trusted my intensity, I guess, to kind of take care of it, which was um, probably for me very good. So um, at a certain point when I got uh, a little older, I realized I really wanted to be really good. And so I just took it upon myself to practice every day and more time. And so I think that in terms of challenges, there was a certain point kind of in the high school range where I felt like I wanted to find, you know, the right teacher match for me. There are certain things that I was working on. And I had some great experiences at some summer programs. I, like, started to cobble together. Uh, but I, I think that the kind of, there was an element of mystification that um, I didn't sit well with me. <laughs> um, that, fortunately, my teacher at Yale when I went to college was um, kind of provided that, you know, everybody sometimes has that puzzle piece they need to kind of really kind of click into the next level. And my teacher, Eric Friedman, was really into demystifying the, the just the technical aspects of it. Like for him, that like should be easy and it shouldn't be some mystery thing that you have to be initiated into. And I think it's true. I mean, he really boiled it down to the physics and thinking of it that way, you know, kind of allowed me to kind of unlock what I naturally had going on. So I really appreciate that. So in the college years, him and, and my other teacher, Tzvi Zeitlin, was, uh, they were both kind of of that mindset of like, let's just get down, you know, clear away the brush and kind of, you know, like the interesting stuff is what you do with it, right? So it kind of cut through some of the conservatory culture and it's just like, there's no reason why lots of people can't play amazing virtuoso violin. Like the issue is like, what do you want to say? And I think that that's kind of where my heart is as a composer too. So it's like, you kind of want to, Love the tools and also not make them into um, some, you know, mysterious mountain because it ends that that can become a real roadblock, I think, for a lot of people. And then also, I mean, I think with the center score, especially like the the use of strings is so amazing and unsettling. I I love that in season three, we, we got to record with a live ensemble, which I conducted. We got to record at Capitol, which, you know, is a really nice, nice room. And um, just, you know, I'd played a lot of, in the previous couple seasons. I do a lot of solo playing. Um, there's a lot of me on there. And it was nice to open that up to the ensemble sound. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but another part of the score is just the, the way you manipulate acoustic recordings and just also your use of electronics. And did you get into that while you were in school or was that later? So it was um, when I was in, I would say in middle school, well, I think that the involvement with technology and interest in how it can affect how we work with media generally was always an interest. Uh, kind of going through some old stuff, I found this picture from, I think I was probably in third or fourth grade, 
and it will date me to say that this was very innovative, but I had a picture of kind of the, the television and the loudspeakers hooked up to a computer. It was all networked. So I think that, and I usually say that it took until about 2012 for technology to get to the place where I'd been waiting for it to get my whole life. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, there are certain peak times when I started to get more and more involved. So, like, I got my first synth in sixth grade. What was it? It was, a, I think it was sixth or seventh grade. It was a DX7 2FD. I still have it. And I was obsessed. You know, I'd read the manual, and I subscribed to Keyboard Magazine, and... Um, so I think in middle school, it was, oops, it was also kind of like a songwriting boom time for me. So that was a period of time where electronic music was like something, I just did it by myself, you know, and I, there weren't a lot of people, I, I didn't know anybody who was doing it in my age group at the time. And as, also as a violinist, I didn't have a lot of mirrors of kind of people who were into pop music and production stuff. So for a little while there, I think it was like, God, I know there are people out there who are into this, but where are they? <laughs> I think something that speaks wonders, too, is that you're the type of person to read in Keyboard Magazine about, I assume, how to program a DX7. And I've spent a little time with a DX7 in school and just was confused and just frustrated and didn't want to make music. So I think your, <laughs> uh, your technical interest and just out of willingness to just go and explore every possibility there really comes through in your music too. Oh, thanks. Well, I feel lucky that I am very grateful that I was able to actually get a synth like that at that stage in my life. It is just amazing how much the culture can influence what's what's available to you. I think sometimes when you have like one or two like big problems to solve, like this synth or whatever, like as a kid, in some ways that was probably a plus, right? Because it, I had to kind of go deeper with my thinking and I couldn't just like, oh, I'll just use a different app, you know? <laughs> but um, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, in in college, the electronic music, I mean, was not really in the forefront of the curriculum. So really what I ended up doing was like super focusing on classical performance and theory and composition. And then when I left college, I got it was kind of like I immediately immersed and um, I went back to New York where I'm from and I took a lot of electronic music and engineering classes and I started doing sound design for theater, which gave me kind of an outlet combining uh, scoring and sound design in theater. So I immediately had a place to experiment with some of the things that I was learning. And, you know, I think from there on, it was like an obsession that has not abated. <laughs> Never leave our walls alone. <laughs> what was the the New York City? Uh, or, or you just said that you were studying there, but did you go to like a lot of electronic music uh, shows too, and like going to the scene? Um, you know, it was there was kind of like a, a little bit of a early rave culture. Um, I I didn't go to a lot of like. I mean, I went to a lot of parties, but they weren't like the all night electronic music raves so much but I was very uh I guess I was like the music is everywhere so even if you didn't go to the events necessarily I feel like I was definitely influenced and resonant with this culture of kind of like I don't know I think that there's a part of me that vibes with the the ecstatic experience which I think was like 
you know, built into creative functioning, right? It's like when you're a creative person, some sometimes you have an internal experience of like opening up and wonder and awe. And I feel like some of that culture is trying to tap into that sense of like there's a, a true sense of euphoria when you get into a certain creative mystical zone. So I, I had many friends with like humongous baggy pants, which was like the thing for... <laughs> 90s rave culture. <laughs> so it's always funny to me because, um, you know, it's really dating me, our conversation right now. But like, you know, the raves obviously have come back and the whole Burning Man thing. And I'm like, yes, it has been around for a while, though, people, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it continues to evolve. But I think that there's also like a there's like a deep through line and people wanting to just kind of have a sanctuary where they can dance and feel vibrations and music. Yeah, I think I've only played like three shows in LA and one happened to be this fundraiser event called Noise Heels where it was with Craig Wedren and Josh who was at the in the Red Hot Chili Peppers at the time, uh, Anna Warrenker and some others, Joe Wong as well. And it, we practiced once before the show at the LA Public Library Festival, and the whole idea was just to make as much noise as possible. And it was there was two songs. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> and the songs we practiced, and then it was an improvised noise jam for I think forty five minutes in between. Uh, <laughs> I wish where... I I wish I'd been there. Maybe I'll hit you up for a recording. Well, I think it also. I mean, there's a lot that we don't even know about, and the only way that we can find out is to create events. Hopefully in the future, we'll get to have more events, but it's just like bodies in space with vibrations. Um, you know, what are the, how does it repattern our thinking to be immersed in noise um, or certain kinds of patterns in music? And I, I think there's so much to learn and, and experiment with, you know. It's obviously also very subjective, but it's kind of an infinite place I think because I, I think that um, music I am really into the kind of fact that music really directly affects not only is not only are we hardwired or pre-wired in certain ways just because of how we evolved but I also think that's evolving we're neuroplastic and just that interaction between music structures and how we respond how our whole nervous system responds I think is fascinating and is not you know, it sounds nerdy, but it's really not esoteric, and it really is part of what we do in film scoring because we're, you know, figuring out ways to make kind of uh, environments where people can have a response that feels authentic and uh, engaging to them, you know, and different people are looking for different neurological experiences, right? The audience varies, but that's kind of what part of what the art form is, I think. It's like an experiment in that area. And it keeps changing based on how the collective language of a score is changing, you know. And I think even though people obviously complain about like temp stuff, keeping them in a certain zone of activity, I think ultimately in a way the exchange of information is faster and the art form has, at least in certain pockets, it has the potential to evolve more quickly than it used to, which I think is very exciting. Yeah, and and I mean, you're very right about just 
I guess the, the physicality of music too. It just really does number on on the body, <laughs> and the soul. Yeah. Or especially your music on the center. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that is something I want to talk about because I remember the first time I, I watched a scene from the center, and just the music felt very like ambient, almost like patty. In a weird way, I almost did, like didn't notice the way that you were building suspense because it's so subtle. And by the time you get to the climax of a scene, it's like you didn't anticipate some of the moves. How did you come up with this type of process of scoring for the show? I think the approach is like there's certain when we look at like all three seasons, the the approach has is kind of morphing as we go mm-hmm. too. Definitely in the first season, this idea of like. I mean, texture, I would say, is really, really key throughout. Um, but to me, like a texture is the word pad, I use the when forced to because it's like a general kind of people understand what it is. But to me, it's a lot more microscopic. And so it's nothing is ever static. And I think this particularly was just like a preoccupation of mine and still is of like, there's always movement, and sometimes it's micro. I think there's a something that goes beyond the actual language of the music that we always do in scoring, which is look at a scene and how, where do we need to really feel a shift? Um, how do we lay the groundwork for that? And a lot of times, I think, I mean, what's great about the vocab of sound design is that it allows us to do things in a lot of different ways. You obviously still have melody and harmony are very, they don't go away. I feel strongly about this too, right? Yes, technically from a certain lens, certain things could be experienced as ambient, but like for me, there are themes in there and those melodic arcs still exist. Sometimes they're moving very slowly and other times, which feel more thematic, those themes are like, oh, you hear the melody because it's moving at like human speed, right? But those same kind of, I love the idea of you can take something which is like kind of a kernel of a melody and when you stretch it out and then fill it out, it has a link to that theme that you've maybe heard once or twice at certain more score forward moments, but it's just kind of manifested in a a different way. So it's it's a little bit of a fractal idea, right? Where you, you can have something that's a seed that can uh, constellate in different ways in space-time. So how did how did the language for the center evolve? I think it's kind of like um, the showrunner was familiar with my way of thinking and and music and brought me on because he thought I would be a good partner in creating the score. He definitely wanted a contemporary score. Uh, he wasn't against using instruments at all, but uh, the idea like that synthesized sound is like a prominent component, but that it should feel really fresh. Like to, it might re- it might resonate with certain things, but he really wanted it to have its its own approach. And I think that, and there's also I think dramatically he really emphasizes not leading. You know, you don't want to be heavy handed. You don't want to like tell people be scared now, and then you get and then the scary thing happens after you did that with the music. <laughs> so it's like, how do you? respond quickly enough you have to be very nimble to actually do that but the whole idea there was that like you want people to really feel we we kind of know each other well and we share an interest in kind of 
strategizing smartly to create a visceral experience. So I think then you have to be a little more creative where you're not just doing typical genre stuff. Um, at the same time, it is a, a, a show which refers to and is aware of genres. So the idea was not to create something so arty that you can't enjoy it. It's like the idea was to create a new kind of thriller where the psychology would feel engaging and exciting and the music could be a window into the subconscious. Are there any um, unique sound design techniques or, um, or instruments too that you've discovered on this show? I feel like I'm always learning new things. Um, I'm trying to think what would be the... Like, we could kind of zoom in on certain areas, right? Like, um, for example, like the uh, the idea of, like, we really were, um, it rem- <laughs> I'm, I have, like, clearly a nonlinear thinker because I have, like, three thoughts at once. And I'm like, which do I say first? Uh, I don't know. But um, so what I'm about to say reminds me of a, a, a painting teacher I had who really never wanted people to use black pigment because he wanted people to find a way to do that with the rest of the colors. So never to outline things, you know, God forbid, or like also, but also in the creation of shadows in a color piece, like how do you really tune into the the color content and represent that in a creative way? So I would liken that to, in the vocabulary of the center, we, you know, do have percussion, but there were certain cases where we didn't want to use a drum, right? And like, just like rely on that. So then it's like, how do you create the percussiveness out of tonal material? And there are a lot of interesting envelope shaping tools. And I, you know, I'm kind of like, it was an area of interest that then I had to like explode open a little bit more because it's like, I think it's very exciting to think of, you know, you're creating out of, you have all this stuff and with envelope shaping tools and even tremolo tools, like there's a lot of plugins we can talk about, but you're, you're creating these little objects that feel more like hits, but those, when you're generating the hits in that way, then you can fray the borders of those hits and that can even open up into a texture. That's kind of one of the beautiful things about gating and hard and soft knee. And, and so I would say that sometimes the design comes like instrument first, like I'll focus on creating the patch that in its inherent nature morphs and, and certain parameters that will become almost part of the signature. Like with this instrument, I'm really using certain filters and certain attack and release as part of how the, like the definition of the boundaries of the instrument. And then sometimes there'll be something where I do have, let's say, let's say string recording and taking that and then processing it kind of post facto. And where I would say the plugin chain and the, again, the kind of parametric definition of how they're being used in combination becomes part of the signature of like what, what I would call like the instrument. And a lot of times it's a combo of those two things. Uh, I love how it really emphasizes the fact that sound design is f- process-based, it's flow-based, and you can choose to articulate parameters of change anywhere along the line, all the way from like, just from the simple first oscillator, but, you know, all the way down to, you know, plugins that you're putting on your track. And we'll go more into that in the, the final segment, Tech Talk. But um, <laughs> Got it. 
And the one last thing I wanted to ask about was your being a guest lecturer at CalArts and Occidental. And I'd say most recently, the most uh, kind of time that I've spent with students has been at Columbia um, in Chicago, which uh, uh, this past year. Yeah. So with all these students at different schools, what do you feel? What do you feel like people come in not knowing that you'd hopefully be able to to teach them? And what what have you learned from your students too? Well, I, I always learn a lot and it always gives back more energy than it, it takes just because it's so, just like with young orchestras, it's like people who are entering a field are really so, like their primary focus is the art form and how to do cool stuff. Everybody wants to, like overall, I would say, you know, students, and they're high level students, right? They're master's students, uh, usually maybe undergrad, but they they're they're interested in, how can I contribute to this art form in an innovative way, which is where my heart lies. And it's always inspiring because sometimes, you know, every job is a little different. And sometimes you take jobs where um, that's not really exactly what it's about. <laughs> so <laughs> I always try to make it about that in my own mind. But um, so I think the the number one thing I learned from students is that like life is alive and like, you know, the to the alignment with creative goals is alive and well and, and worthwhile. What I try to provide from, for them is on mul- multiple levels, right? From a career development perspective, I try to give them some foothold, some anchors, and some advice so that they can, um, I would say, like, negotiate some of the different vectors and forces that you encounter with some knowledge ahead of time. I would say I didn't really have that many sources of, you know, I don't know. I felt like there are certain things I was very lucky to get to experience in career development, like going to the Sundance Lab. But I think overall, just trying to give them a sense that like of helping them to feel like the authors of their own synthesis of how they're taking in people's advice, because people give a lot of different advice that often conflicts. Like, be yourself, have your own voice. Nobody wants to hear that, you know, mock-up stuff. And then, you know, getting in a situation where they actually do have to pitch a very genre-specific thing, and people want to know that they can do that thing very well. So just how to kind of, I think ultimately it's like not needing one narrative, right? Understanding how to be nimble and how to listen to the needs of the, the clients and how to find vitality and joy in the experience of shaping your process to somebody else's needs and kind of embracing that. I think that's one of the big keys is like not to get stuck in this kind of the composer bubble, but really enjoy. Like, I think the, even the thing of talking to directors is often phrased as like, if you go to a lot of the forums, people will often complain about Oh, the director doesn't understand how, you know, how do I make this silly director understand music? And like, I just think that rather than look at things that way, kind of enjoy the experience. The whole point of us being drawn to this field is because it speaks to a lot of people, not just professional musicians. So just helping them to bridge that and actively embrace their role as translators. And I think it's kind of like a lifelong activity, which is can be really fun. And I just think, I think it always helps not to problematize, but rather to see things as everything is a new creative opportunity for how you can develop your communicating instrument. And it really transforms the way all of your interactions go that way. So, I mean, that's like one small aspect. I mean, we talk a lot about 
We work a lot on scenes, like giving feedback and talk a lot about tech stuff. So I think that there are, you know, one of the nice things about the residency that I did at Columbia is it gave uh, me a chance to be available for students to talk about the whole range of topics, the ones that are really, really music and composer specific, then like composer specific for film scoring, and then more generally like some different paths to take in order to keep building career-wise. Gotcha. Well, on the topic of tech, we'll just go on to the final segment for this podcast called Tech Talk, a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as little or as much as you want about it. <laughs> I was worried that you were going to say it was like um, like the quick fire round. Like, uh, <laughs> you have 10 seconds. Say something salient yeah. about this piece of tech now. <laughs> you got to say something prolific about each one now. That's the goal. And you have less than five seconds. So here we go, DAW. <laughs> uh, so yeah, first one is DAW. DAW. Rapidly, rapidly evolving field. I work in Pro Tools. It has been, for my workflow, very positive in terms of my ability to interact with the cutting room and with directors. I know certain people who are huge Reaper fans, DP fans, Cubase, like everybody has reasons for their loyalty area. I think that working on TV, Pro Tools has been particularly useful because of that thing of there being no daylight between a session that I can send an editor um, or receive. So um, that's really kind of been primary. Since I've been really busy going from project to project, I have not, you know, when I first started out, I really, I worked with all of them. I worked with Cubase. We didn't have Reaper then, Logic, not as much DP and, and Pro Tools. And, and I actually didn't, I kind of refused to commit my hardware setup only to be optimal for one or another for quite a long time. So I think, you know, I'd love to have a little time to mess around and see if, you know, I also use Ableton a lot, but that's more for, for live shows. And, um, and I, I find that, you know, for sequencing, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's great, but scoring has its own um, requirements and stuff. So, Do you ever use it in Rewire and Pro Tools? I have. Uh, I don't know why I, I should not have a Rewire roadblock in my mind. I mean, I, I've used it with Reason and, and Ableton on numerous occasions. I think the idea of like having, it's just like the multiple timeline. I love the idea of multiple timelines within the sequencer, which of course is never implemented as, as fully as I would love. But um, I think that's, that's why. But maybe you'll inspire me on my next project to, to do a little more rewire. <laughs> cool. Next we have uh, creative controllers. Um, love them. Love everything about them. Um, I have, I want more of them. <laughs> um, I, uh, I am really interested in, in, in what I'd like to incorporate more are uh, movement-based controllers where I could kind of just like open up some gestures using, using my body and hands because um, that's kind of a lot of the way I think. So I, I've done work like that in the past in grad school and I'd love to incorporate it more into my scoring process. I do have, you know, like I have a seaboard. I'd love to get a continuum to the, what I like about those surfaces is just the aspect of continuity. And I think it does kind of come from being a string player, you know, that fluidity and multidimensionality 
I'm a big fan, and I'm super psyched about how MPE is becoming more present and, you know, it's like supported by more and more software instruments. You know, I have I have a machine controller. I use a Nord as my main controller just because I like the Nord as a synth, and then it's just like set up to go if I want to use something there synth-wise too, and the action is nice. I have I also have an NKS keyboard, which is useful for some things. What else can I say? I guess the next thing has to be a keytar. <laughs> should probably shout my friend Keytar Jeff right now, who uses this software called Real Guitar. And he, he plays a keytar, but only plays like a guitarist on it. And it's insane. I yeah, I've seen I've seen that demonstrated. It is kind of mind blowing, actually. <laughs> next we've got Ooh, exciting one. Uh, Even Tide H9. Oh, yeah. I really, really love the H9. So, it, especially for, I mean, I could even, I don't know if I can I could show you a couple of the pedals on the floor in back of me. I, I have kind of a modular pedal board setup where I have different pedal boards that are kind of, uh, they kind of work on their own as a little environment, but also I can route between them. So it's like, it doesn't inevitably get a couple new pedals and it turns into like cable mess for a little while. But when something becomes kind of part of a more normal workflow, I do like to kind of have it paired with a few buddies on a board that kind of works nicely together. So I have a, I have a board with a couple of H9s in addition to uh, a TC looper, an extra little reverb and a preamp. And that has been really great for Definitely for violin and electric violin, although it's great for guitar too. What I love about the H9 is, especially when you have two, then you really can make the most out of it because you can have something which combines modulation and delay and then have something spatial. And, you know, that's kind of a lot. And if you, it even has distortion stuff. So just, especially with paired with one or two other things, you have like a really, really wide palette of sounds. I mean, even just one algorithm does give you a lot, but just in terms of shaping a whole sound. And they keep on updating it. I mean, I think it's a great deal. I mean, like doing an Eventide commercial, but um, I, I think it's, it's uh, well-loved for, for those reasons. And uh, it's also very controllable through different sources, which, which I think is a big plus, also through the, through the DAW and stuff. So. For sure. And last one we've got here is violin mics. Oh, well, I'm still, I, I, I actually am, in the studio, I, I really like ribbon mics, actually. I have a Royer 122 um, that I feel has kind of a velvetiness that for score work is really nice. You know, it means that there's, I mean, we all have EQ, so it's cool to EQ, but it kind of, it just, uh, it has kind of pre-encapsulates the, the violin sound in, a, in a, I think, a very beautiful way that sits nicely in a lot of mixes. I have used, you know, a lot of others. I, for some reason, I'm not as into the, the small condensers, except for the Sheps. That's on my list of mics that I really want. I was so spoiled by having access to all the Sheps in college. I actually just went through an old session from two years ago where I was doing drum sampling right before graduation, and I got very nervous about not having the studio again, so I just sampled everything over 12-hour sessions. And uh, yeah, Sheps sound great. Yeah, so that, that would be my... The CMC6 is, is, is nice for violin, so yeah. Amazing. Well, you killed it here, and do you want to tell the people what you've got going on? 
Um, yeah, so I'm actually I'm wrapping up a film right now for Amazon. Not sure if I can say the title yet because I, I looked for it on IMDb. I didn't see it listed by name. So TBD, it's coming out, I think, pretty soon. It's been a lot of fun because it's um, it's a drama as well. It is a thriller, but it's a drama too. And there's a lot of, I'd say, a strong thread of a mother-daughter relationship, which has opened up a lot of nice melodic possibilities. And it's, it's a, a story that takes place both in uh, the United States and in India. So also musically has been really fun to work with. And um, I have a couple other film projects coming up after after that. So it's been a little bit of a, it's nice to be returning to, to films, having been very immersed in TV for the past couple of years. And I always like to do both. It can happen at the same time. But as it happens, it's been kind of a little bit of a, oh, let's go over here. And um, yes, it's, uh, it's so interesting because I've come to, you know, you know, Matt, with TV, it's like you have to build a quite an infrastructure just to kind of create a vocabulary that you can bring back and evolve over many, 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 many hours of music. So it feels almost like weird um, to <laughs> just need to write <laughs> a little more than an hour of music. I'm like, what? <laughs> so um, anyway, that's kind of what's going on right now. Amazing. Well, Renee, thank you so much for being a guest. It's my pleasure. You're, you're such a great host and composer. It's, it's uh, come back whenever you want. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong. Matthew Wong.